Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. Great singing together. Great singing. Brennan uh, rightly exhorted us not to let our minds wander while we were singing. And especially those last two songs, my mind wandered. But I want to defend myself, and I think even Brennan would be okay with this. Jesus on my cross I've taken, the way, that, the way that song ends, it says, it says the, it says the word, soon, soon, faith will turn to sight, soon. And then that, the song we just sang is all about Isaiah 65 and 66 and the new heavens and the new earth. And my mind wandered to uh, two of our friends, who just in the last few days are up there. Our friend Sherry Ladd and our friend Tom Peterson. And for years, I sang those songs with them down here, anticipating. And I'm still stuck down here, (laughs) anticipating. They have it. They have it. They have it. Far better part and be with Christ. We're going to be in Isaiah 65 today. I, I, I can't wait to get to this text. It is such a glorious text about our future and how God will make all things new. Let's ask God's help in prayer. Our Father in heaven, may, may the spirit of Jesus open the eyes of our minds that we may see and approve those things which are excellent. May the Spirit persuade our hearts to receive these truths and to love these truths and then to direct our steps to walk in your paths that we may be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah 65 is about God's promise to his people that things will get better. Isaiah 65 is about the, God's final purpose of grace where he makes all things new and he wipes all tears away. Isaiah opened in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 with a severe emphasis on God's judgment and how bad things are on the earth. That was Isaiah 1 through 5. And then Isaiah bookends his prophecy because in the last four or five chapters of Isaiah, it's not about how bad things are on the earth anymore. It's about how perfectly restored everything will be when God's righteousness covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 65, beginning in verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. 
No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who doesn't fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call... I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. These verses describe the promised blessings of God's coming kingdom. Racine Bible Church throughout her history has been doctrinally located as far as our end times teachings as a premillennial church, which means that we believe that Jesus will return and then for a thousand years he will reign on this earth before he inaugurates the new heavens and the new earth at the end of that thousand year reign. My plan is, Lord willing, next week, to take, a, to take one week and just give you a theological doctrinal overview of, of why we're premillennial and why that makes sense. Here in Isaiah 65, Isaiah speaks of the millennial reign of Christ and also of the new heavens and the new earth, even though those are a thousand years apart. Just like in other places of Isaiah, he speaks about Jesus being born and then also Jesus returning. And we know those are like more than a thousand years apart because we're still waiting for his return. It's, that, it's the mountain peaks of Old Testament prophecy that look close together from far off, but maybe when you get up to them, they're further apart. Isaiah weaves both of these together. And like I said, uh, Lord willing, maybe next week I'll take more of a, a theological doctrinal overview. I just want to go through what each verse says today and celebrate what they say because church, this is... This is a word about your future. If you are in Christ, if you have forever stopped being your own Lord and you've repented and said, Jesus is Lord, then these verses are about your future. And the way they begin in verse 17, God says, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things won't even be remembered or come into mind. You can forget your former troubles because things will be so much better than they were before. The commentary that was perhaps the most helpful to me in our study of Isaiah was by Alec Matier, a, a very highly regarded Hebrew scholar. And he says, his, in his commentary on verses 17 and 18, he says this. Verses 17 and 18 make even the very good of Genesis 1.31 sound comparatively small. And if you understand the Hebrew scriptures, that's actually a shocking statement because Genesis 1.31 is describing a world without sin on it before Adam and Eve fell. So I was like, is that, is that an okay thing to say? It's intriguing. And I wonder if it is accurate. 
because Eden was perfect. But I wonder if somehow after not God, but we ruined Eden. After the suffering servant of the Lord takes the consequences of that ruination upon himself by sovereign mercy and grace and then comes back and he who took those consequences, he himself with his own hands recreates Eden. I wonder if it really will be better than it even was before. Each of these verses has something in it that ought to set your mind just spinning ahead. And the truth about verse 18, we could call it one final command. God says, be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. What is the, to use your Bible observation skills, what is the imperative? What is the command in verse 18? God says, be glad and rejoice forever. So church, get this. When Jesus returns, everything will come down to one command. One command. And what's the command? Rejoice and be glad in the presence of Jesus. What a, what, what a, what a wonderful truth to contemplate. In his first coming, remember, they, they kind of tried to corral Jesus and say, there's a lot of commands in the Bible. What's the greatest command? Jesus said the greatest command is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If Isaiah 65 is describing what it will be like for us to be in the presence of God, then doesn't it make sense? There won't be 382 different commands. There'll be one reality that in the presence of God, our love in God is our joy that he is ours and we are his. And, and, and that goes on forever. What is sin? That's a good Sunday school question. Sin is disobedience. Sin is rebellion. Yes, yes, yes. Another biblical definition of sin is that sin is disordered love. Sin is sending your love, sending your hope, sending your joy into that which is not ultimate. If sin is disordered love and a disordered quest for joy, well, when we get to see God and we see him as he is and we love him in the presence of his spirit and fullness, then, then you could get to the other Sunday school question like, why won't we sin when we're in heaven? Because the law enforcement is stricter up there? I don't think so. <laughs> the reason we won't sin in heaven is because we will finally love God as we ought, and that love is joy. It's not going to be a burden not to sin. It's going to be the best thing in the world because all of our love and all of our joy will be directed into the fountain of perfect joy and love forever and ever. And church, I, and, and I, I exhort you, especially those of you who are struggling with a life-dominating sin, 
I just want to tell you, it may be the case that you don't think and pray nearly enough about the fact that you sin the way that you sin because you love the things that you love. And you need to beg the Holy Spirit of God to reorder your loves from within. One final command, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Well, I said there's one just blistering hot truth in each one of these these verses, and there is. The one in verse 19, we could call it God's joy overall. In verse 18, was a command for us to have joy? Verse 19 is just a, a glorious declaration of the fact that God is rejoicing. You see it? Who's the speaker? The first word is I. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping. The, the, the one speaking is God, the one who's creating all things new. This is God rejoicing. So when we get to heaven, or, or even, in, even, in the, even in the millennium, those of us who are in Christ, the, 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 we won't sin anymore because we rejoice in Jesus but the prosperity of his people is the joy of the Lord because he has set his love upon his covenant people. So the rejoicing of God's people is joy unto God himself. Makes sense. Isaiah 53 says that we are saved because the suffering of the servant's people became the suffering of the suffering servant. And is it not the case that if he took our iniquities and our sins and our sorrows and our transgressions and their consequences and our hell upon himself, would it not also make sense then that when we receive the joy of our salvation, it's our rejoicing in our salvation that will become to him his great joy? It says in Zephaniah 3, Nobody memorizes verses out of Zephaniah anymore. Back when I was a kid, we looked, no, I'm just kidding. But Zephaniah 317, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. <laughs> That's the reason people dig that verse from Zephaniah is because it says God himself is gonna sing louder than he did before. What does that even mean? because he rejoices in the prosperity of his people. Church, this is who we are and who we were destined to be. If you were here last week, it was a really special week for us. We had our congregational or our members meeting in the evening. We had a special sermon in the morning about the nature of the church. Then we had that ministry fair in the fellowship hall where everybody could figure out how they, you know, different ways that they could serve. We're like, what is the church? Which is actually a decent answer to the question, why did God create the world? An answer could be God created the world so that he could obtain a beautiful bride for his son so that in the ages to come, we would see what a, what a, what a glorious head and husband Jesus is by how he cares for and lavishes love upon his bride. The church is the means through which the father delights in the son. 
The church is the means through which the Father delights in the Son. And the church is the way the Father eternally rewards his Son for what a glorious Son and Savior he is. And we are caught up in that. The point of eternity is to show what can't be fully shown which is how beautiful and glorious Jesus is. And our presence there is, is, is the massive part of that because we're the redeemed purchased by his blood. God's joy. What a marvelous truth there in verse 19. Verse 20 shows us death rolled back. The reason we interpret this as referring to the millennium is because some of these verses describe conditions where things are a lot more like Eden, but people still die and everything's not totally and completely new yet. Verse 20 describes a, a return sort of like to the conditions of the earth before the flood, when people lived for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Bible trivia, Bible trivia. How old was Adam when he died? Answer. From Genesis 5, 930 years old. How old was Noah when he had his three sons? Answer from Genesis 5, he was 500 years old when he fathered those boys. Who is the oldest person in the Bible? Methuselah. How old is he? 969 years old. Like People are like, you really believe that? I'm like, yes, I believe that. Have you seen the stuff that MSNBC believes? It's a lot stupider than the stuff I believe. Like, you know, like I actually believe this. It's true. It's true. But this is, it, that, that was literally true then when the curse was new in the, the whatever you want to call it, the, the genetic effects of our depravity had not rolled all the way through yet. Well, it's going to be true again when Jesus returns on this earth in that millennial reign before the, the new heavens and the new earth. The, in the millennial reign, the curse is rolled back and the planet becomes what, like it was in early Genesis. There will still be sin and death, but at the moment of the inauguration of the millennial kingdom, everyone on the earth will be a sheep. The goats are put aside. Then as, as, as children are born, maybe not everybody will, will come to, to become a Christian and be born again, but the vast majority will. But when Jesus is here, sin and death will not be as common as they were or as they are now. So if death is rolled back, then look at 21, 22, and 23 together as a picture of total security and perfect prosperity. It says, they shall build houses and inhabit them. And if that doesn't sound like a big deal to you, like, of course I get to inhabit what I built. You, you got to remember the entirety of the Old Testament, like Deuteronomy 28, where God says, if you would obey me, everything you build, you'll be able to enjoy it. But if you disobey me, everything you build, marauders and idolaters will come in and take it. And so this is saying we'll, we'll, we'll get to enjoy the peace and prosperity of being his obedient covenant people. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. And then it says in verse 23, 
they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. There's perhaps no darker cloud than a parent seeing awful things happen to his or her child. In fact, remember I, uh, remember I said that Isaiah begins with uh, the curses of sin and then it's, there's like these bookends. It's hard to remember because you guys are like, we did start in Isaiah chapter one. The problem is like, no one could imagine gas being more than $2 a gallon like when we started in Isaiah one. And now, now, now where we, you know, <laughs> now where, where we are. No, a, a trivia question. When did I start Isaiah one? You're like 1988. No, it was uh, February of 2022. But anyway, the, the thing is, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 5, God laments that his children have rebelled against him. He says, I've, I've raised these children and they've rebelled against me. And God himself puts himself in the position of a heartbroken parent who is seeing awful things happen to his child because of his child's uh, decisions. And he laments that. Then we come all the way to the end and it says that'll never happen again. No one's gonna bear children for calamity. This picture of prosperity. And it's interesting that he mentions the vineyards. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Vineyards are mentioned for a couple of reasons. Uh, in the Old Testament, wine is a drink of celebration. But also in the Hebrew scriptures, vineyards are mentioned as, as something that requires a long time of peace and security. Because not only do you have to let the grapes grow, but like the, 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 the grapes that are picked aren't the very first ones that grow. You have to let the vineyard mature and then you pick later harvests and then you go through the whole winemaking process, which itself takes a long, long time. This is why the vineyard is called the seed of peace in Zechariah and Zephaniah because the, for you to have a successful vineyard requires that you're living in peace and prosperity for many decades. When I was in middle school, we got to pick our electives and I picked a horticulture class because that's the one that met outside. And you know, we, we, I still remember this day, we grew radishes. And the reason we chose radishes is because from seed to fruit, it was like, it's like four to six week process. We didn't, when I signed up for horticulture, we didn't plant vineyards and make wine. Partly because that would be illegal for middle schoolers to do that, but also because it would take many, many, many years. That's why he's talking here about that thousand years that, that all the vineyards will mature and there'll be such prosperity and security. It's also a hint that when he uses the, the word, the work of their hands, end of verse 22, my chosen shall enjoy the work of their hands. It's a hint that in the millennium, not in the, well, maybe differently in the new heavens and the new earth, but certainly in the millennium, there'll be conditions like the conditions today where babies are born and where culture is cultivated. And if you bake bread or you are a winemaker or you are a painter or you are a snowboarder 
or whatever it is that you enjoy doing. It's like you get to do that like for Jesus in these, in these, in these ideal conditions. And you get to enjoy the labor of your hands. Well, from this marvelous peace and prosperity and security, then we have verse 24, prayer answered before it is prayed. See verse 24, God speaking, before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. If I had taken the time to read Isaiah 1 and 2, I would have been able to show you about a dozen connections that bookend Isaiah 1 and 2 to Isaiah 65 and 66. One of the things in Isaiah 1 and 2 is two or three times God says to his people, you are calling on me and I will not hear you because your hands are covered with blood because you are a whoring people who are unfaithful and chasing your own lusts. And so from God promising not to answer prayer. This is how much better things get. Isaiah 65 doesn't just say God will answer their prayer. What does it say? Before they get it out, God will answer it. You want to be close to God? How close do you want to be to God? I want to walk with God so closely that when I pray, he answers me. Good, but not best. I want to be so close to God that what I'm thinking about praying is, is so godly and so in tune with who he is and what his will is that, that, that everything's already in motion before I even say it. The oneness, the, what verse 24 describes as the oneness between the Lord and his people, the, the key line from Revelation 21, I will be their God and they will be my people, we'll be together. The oneness between the Lord and his people is that God will so anticipate his people's needs with such constant loving care. And his people will have such a wholehearted love for God. His people will have such a wholehearted love for him and such a rejoicing in his will that everything we ask will be his will and because we love him and he'll give us everything we ask because he loves us. There's this, there's this oneness where they're so close Maybe your mind already goes there. When I try to think of an illustration, the, the best one that comes to mind is an old, wrinkled, but super in love married couple who are like on their 67th year of marriage and they love each other more than they did day one. You know, um, by God's grace, that kind of describes my mom and dad. If you've met my mom and dad, my mom and dad could not be more different than each other. She was like from a stable home in Oklahoma. He was from like a crazy unstable home in Southern California. But they married in Christ. They were always devoted to the church, devoted to mentoring others and being mentored themselves. And they, they've got one of those marriages where like, I just watch my dad take care of everything for my mom, like just by instinct. And I, and I watch my mom like quietly rearrange things according to dad's preferences without even, without even anybody even knowing. And it's like they, they just anticipate each other's needs and they have such a loving devotion for themselves that, that, that they do that like with, with and um, 
I realize as I'm describing that, that's, that's not all of your situation with your parents. Like my, my situation, and I guess in part, it's, maybe it's, it's made me the guy I am today. Like personally, I could imagine that like the, the whole ceiling of this place crumbling right now and everything falling on us is more likely than my parents splitting up like the love they have for each other. And I realize that's, that's not the case for many of you. It's probably not even the case for most of you. If that's not the case for you, the, the point is that you can have a security and a closeness with God, like what is described here. If that is the case for you, like it was for me, then this is one more reason to honor your folks and to be so thankful that the lines have fallen to you in the places that they have. But what this describes is that, that if you could picture an old married couple that just love each other so much and they meet each other's needs all the time, th- this is like, this is how much God will love us and we will love God when we are together with him. Before they call, I'll answer. And while they're yet speaking, I will hear. And then verse 25, the wolf and the lamb. The wolf and lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. This is parallel to Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, verse six. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Isaiah 11, verse nine. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The reason that everyone and everything is at peace is because, if you see, just before it says, thus says the Lord at the end of our chapter, in the last line of the, of the, of the little poem that verse 25 is, it says, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. What happens is that the holy place, as it were, becomes the whole earth. So there, so there, there can't be this, this kind of uh, lions chomping on lambs, but there's this peace, this peace, because the curse is rolled back and it's like Eden, but somehow even better. So from the wolf and the lamb at peace, Reflecting back to our first point out of verse 18, be glad and rejoice forever. In the new heavens and the new earth, there really is one command. In the millennial kingdom, there really is one command, rejoice in Jesus. Love Jesus. Rejoice in Jesus. And our love for him will be directed toward him. And this will protect us from sin and death itself. It makes me reflect that Christian thinkers have said down through the ages that God, that God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. You ever heard that? That God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. Filling that in, what that means is God indeed threatens terrible things 
if we will not be happy in him. God does indeed threaten terrible things if we will not be happy in him. This is a unique way to look at the gospel. If we are happy in God, if we're trusting God, if we're following God, then God's holiness becomes our happiness and our joy. If we are trying to find happiness and joy by turning away from God and getting happiness and joy somewhere else, we'll never make it and we will end unsaved. So it's another way of thinking about receiving the gospel. Receiving the gospel is believing the person and work of Jesus Christ, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's also another way to say it is that receiving the gospel is becoming a person who has found your greatest joy in Jesus. And refusing the gospel or not believing the gospel is being a person who is still saying, I am finding my joy somewhere outside of Jesus. He's not the pearl. He's not everything. God does indeed threaten terrible things if we won't be happy in Jesus. This is also why hell is sometimes described as the dwelling place for all those who forever refuse to find their joy in Jesus. They didn't want him. They have a life without him. In the light of all this, what do we do? Well, we spread the good news of the gospel because the day is coming. Or as Jesus said, night is coming when no man can work. Do your work in the daytime. We spread the good news of the gospel everywhere. But the thing I want you to understand from this, the promise of God that things will get better is that, is, that, is that it prepares you to deny yourself, to sacrifice, to persevere because anything, anything that you deny yourself now for the sake of Jesus, any difficulty you persevere through to keep your testimony in Jesus it will be worth it. Anything you deny yourself now, you get, you get to finally understand that this is like a short-term denial of something that doesn't really matter for the sake of Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Or Psalm 36, seven through nine, that, that, that when we get there, we feast in the abundance of his house and we drink from the river of delights for in God is the fountain of joy. So when God says, deny yourself and follow me, all he's actually saying is like, deny yourself a, a slightly better tent in this refugee city that you're only gonna be in for 48 hours anyway. It's, it's not even that much which makes you realize, which is the point of revelation, the people who quit obeying to God to bow down to Babylon and they refuse to name the name of Jesus, they're making the worst decision of their life. Why would you sacrifice everything for a little better tent in a refugee city when you have a city whose builder and maker is God, the fountain of all joy? So don't you ever deny Christ and don't ever second guess denying yourself to follow Jesus. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. Every sacrifice Jesus asks us to make 
he demands of us because he has something better for us forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we receive your word, write its truth in the affections that are represented in our hearts. Recalibrate our desires. Reorder our loves. Take away worldly fear of man and what man can do to me and establish the blessed joy of the liberty of the fear of the Lord, which leads to life and joy forever. Lord Jesus, by your spirit, do a marvelous work in the hearts of all those who are here. We, that we may know your faithfulness until you return for us. May it be soon. Amen. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.